This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Roger Houston. Roger has spent decades traveling the Earth, studying the teachings of both Eastern and Western masters. He has published 20 books, as well as the best-selling book, 10 Poems to Change Your Life. With Sounds True, Roger is releasing a new book and a companion audio series called Keeping the Faith Without a Religion. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Roger and I spoke about our increased access to the wisdom of all of the spiritual traditions of the world, alongside our society's increasing distrust of authority and how this has led to a migration away from traditional religion. We also talked about what it might mean to have faith when terrible things happen in our lives and the relationship between faith and having an unconditional trust in life itself. Finally, we talked about the connection between poetry and faith and poetry as a non-denominational universal language of the spirit. Here's my conversation with Roger Husden. Roger, I want to begin by talking with you about something that we could call a phenomena in our time. And really, it's the phenomena that the title of your new book encapsulates, Keeping the Faith Without a Religion. The phenomena of so many people feeling distanced, disconnected from traditional religion, and yet feeling this deeply spiritual sense or longing or desire to have a spiritual life and not quite knowing, well, where do I fit in this new landscape? So I'm curious how you would describe this phenomena in our time. Yes, thank you for that, uh, Tammy. You know, I would begin by thinking of the word faith itself. And it's so normal, really, in our language to equate faith with religion. Um, but I think faith is prior to religion. In fact, it's, it's essentially part of who we are as human beings. And I don't think faith means necessarily a faith in something or in someone, um, but rather something I feel that is again, part of our humanity, that we do at times, if not always, we do at times have what I call a non-rational intuition of both life itself and the way it's going, but also of the, of the organic, natural truth and beauty that life holds alongside all the darkness and the difficulty. And that intuition, which is not irrational, I would say, but non-rational, beyond the rational. That intuition um, really connects us more deeply, even in times of great difficulty, to a trust in life that, um, that is part of who we are as human beings. And of course, we lose it. And we gain it, and we lose it, and we remember it. And religion has usually, for the last as long as we can remember recorded history, religion has been the repository for that kind of faith. But I would suggest that that faith is simply intrinsic to our humanity. Um, and there are people throughout history who have spoken of it in that way. Walt Whitman is, uh, is one, Wordsworth is another one, and it's no surprise that they're poets, that they speak out of... Um, of an inspiration themselves that connects them to that that 
sense of faith. So with the breaking down of traditional forms, not just in religion, but in politics, in nationalities, uh, in the global world, the, we're really fully in now and only going to be more fully in. With the breaking down of these traditional um, realms and uh, repositories for belief and faith, we have returned essentially to ourselves, which can be very frightening uh, and feel at times very lonely, but it does return us in a way that offers us the potential to stand in our own knowing, stand in our own faith. And I think that's what these times are calling us to, these times of uh, a more global community. It's a paradox, really, because the community that we're living in, in one way, is getting larger and larger, primarily through the media, the online media, <clears throat> which connects us uh, around the world. So on the one hand, we're um, moving into an increasingly global community, and yet on the other hand, being returned progressively more and more to ourselves, um, because the traditional, um, more local communities uh, are beginning to fall away. That's uh, an interesting paradox, to be living in a global society uh, as an individual. Um, and that, that paradox, I think, calls us to a deeper inner faith, both in ourselves and in life, that I think is our heritage as human beings. Now, Roger, maybe to ask a question that seems obvious to you, but it, it's not obvious to me exactly. Why is it that in our time, traditional religious structures don't seem to be holding up? Why is that happening right now at this time in history? Oh, gosh. Um, so many different strands, I think, to respond to that. Um, first of all, clearly, the development over the last 50 years, say, of uh, global communications has brought communities and traditions uh, and institutions together, rubbing shoulders together in a way which has never really happened to this degree before. People have always, and communities have always uh, been in contact with each other. Actually, quite surprisingly, you know, even um, 2,000 years ago, the East and the West were much more in contact with each other than we think. Uh, or tend to think, but nothing like uh, today, where at the flick of a switch or the press of a button or a key, you can see what's happening anywhere in the world. Um, so that is dissolving uh, dissolving borders uh, by itself. That alone is enough. And then along with that, economically, the world is no longer no longer consists of individual communities or even nations who are self-sufficient economically. And so uh, economic demands of a global uh, community demand, again, much greater contact and connection with everyone else, essentially. And then uh, political troubles, political difficulties uh, play their part. Uh, for example, uh, in the early 50s, uh, Tibet was overrun by China and the Chinese. Uh, which brought about the Tibetan diaspora. And inevitably, when a tradition is uprooted from its native soil and needs to find uh, new ground, it's going to have to, at least over time, adapt to the ground, the new ground that it finds itself in. And Tibetan Buddhism is an excellent example of that. Um, the, the teachings that were so secret 50 years ago and given only to um, other high lamas high in the mountains are now available in any small town in America for the price of admission. Um, and that is also um, an illustration, an example of what in a positive sense we may call the democratization of religion and the increasing distrust of authority, political authority and also religious authority uh, has been and is being uh, greatly challenged by events. Um, and of course, the Catholic Church uh, and the Christian Church in general um, is an example of the way in which uh, 
doctrine which has been held sacred for a thousand, two thousand years uh, is now routinely questioned because the institution itself is having to face the much more democratic times that we live in. The Vatican is not a democratic organization. The Catholic Church um, is essentially an aristocracy, uh, a male, entirely male aristocracy. Um, that may have worked uh, in the Middle Ages, but it's no longer working now. And actually, the current Pope recognizes that and is attempting to uh, to do something about that in terms of his shift and change of message. So uh, the authority of the church has been is now under question uh, because it's no longer in sync with the democratizing momentum of cultures in general, uh, which simply are not going to stand for or accept the authority uh, of someone who not only tells you tells you, you know, that um, what, what God wants of you and what you must do and must not do, but also feels they have uh, an immunity and a, in a sense of um, power relationship to, this is what's brought about the sexual abuses, which are common actually not just in Christianity, but in all traditional religious cultures uh, where men and women are, are segregated. So, uh, the spirit of the times is very different to the traditional spirit of those of these religions, of all religions, which, after all, came into being 2,000 years ago in a very different climate. Now, interestingly, Roger, just this afternoon in reading your book, preparing for this conversation, I was sitting in a diner, and as I sat down, the waitress looked at the title of the book, Keeping the Faith Without a Religion, and she was so excited to talk to me. She practically sat down next to me in the booth and told me her whole confessional life story of her religious upbringing and where she is now. And, you know, it was obvious to me this is really a question in our time, this question of how do I keep the faith without mm -hmm. a religion. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you were describing your definition of faith, you said it's a non-rational intuition about the world, and you distinguished non-rational from irrational. Tell me what you mean by that, why you're distinguishing non-rational from irrational when talking about faith. So I'd say that irrational, well, irrational for me implies uh, an emotional response, um, not necessarily based on uh, anything deeper than one's own reaction to whatever it is one's having the response to. Um, Non-rational, for me, implies something, a, a form of insight or understanding that is coming through you, but not through a normal, um, rational intellect. Uh, and of course, we know of intuition. You could call intuition a non-rational knowing. Um, but I will, I will go even further with the word faith than intuition, um, although they're, they're very close, I would say. Um, the notion of intuition, that, and I think intuition is generally accepted as something that we all have and do all have from time to time. Um, and that is non-rational, but the faith I'm speaking of um, comes, I think, from a, from a different dimension in us, even than intuition. Um, it's been shown that intuition actually uh, doesn't necessarily come out of nowhere. It comes out of um, long experience in a particular field. So if you've been a firefighter for 25 years um, and you're right there in the middle of a, of, a, of a fire and suddenly you say to everyone else, we've got to get out of here in 30 seconds, the roof is going to come, and come down. You, there's no obvious sign that why you're saying that th at that moment but you just know that you've got to get your men out of there. But that knowing or that intuition 
comes from long experience, and it's not a rational thing. You sense it in that instant, and you get your men out of there. Um, and faith, I would say, comes from somewhere even deeper than that. Actually, comes from not not from a store of knowledge, not from a store of experience, but I think from part of us that is actually connected to life in the broader, larger sense. Uh, the part of us that connects the personal in us to the universal. I think that that connection is, is homing in on, on what faith is or where faith, where faith comes from. Now, there are so many things, Roger, actually, that I want to talk with you about this topic. But as you're speaking, the one that occurs to me right now are people who at one point had a sense of faith in the way that you're describing. And then something terrible happened in their life, something yeah. just terrible, where they felt betrayed in some way, if you yeah. will, by God, by the universe, by life. How could this happen? And I'm curious what you would say to someone, to a listener, who feels some of that. Like, yeah, I used to have faith, but now I think that's for, you know, people who just, you know, need to put a pacifier in their mouth. It's not really the way things are. Right. So again, um, I'm not using faith in the sense of faith in something or someone, but rather faith as, as, a, as a well of trust, if you like. Trust in what? Not trust that things are going to be fine. Not trust in the fact that everything's going to work out the way you want it. Because we know, all of us know, that life just does not happen in that way. It does sometimes. But as much and often more, it doesn't. So what is this trust in then, if it's not trust in a result, in an outcome? Well, I would say it's trust or faith that, that what is happening in any one given moment is what needs to be happening, not from some prior design, but simply from the fact that if this is what I've got in this moment, this is what I need to respond to, to the best of my ability and with the depths of myself. So, for example, change. You know, I'm. I have. Uh, I had money last year. I have no money this year. Um, I was married last year. I divorced last month. You know, these things happen. Change, for example, is a fundamental given of our existence, and it's not anybody's fault that things change, and. It's not God's fault if there is a God. It's not our fault. It's that that is intrinsic to life itself. And I think the trust I'm speaking of is a trust that the process of life, which includes change, includes suffering, includes darkness, includes our imperfection. It includes all of these. It also includes joy, love, wonder, beauty. But those light and dark aspects are all woven into any one human life. And I don't know, Tammy, I can't help but see some kind of broken perfection in, in that tapestry of light and dark that my life is anyway, and I think most people's life is. And there's, there's actually a couple of great lines by the Spanish poet Antonio Machado that points to this, um, that points to things are never quite how we see them. Uh, he says, uh, the golden bees are making white combs and sweet, sweet honey from all my old failures. The golden bees are making white combs and sweet honey from all my old failures. So what we thought were failures, what we thought were disasters, actually in the fabric of time don't necessarily turn out to be like that at all. They 
turn out to be an inherent and actually even essential part of the painting of our life. So the trust, the faith that I'm speaking of is something about that, about the trust in the whole process, not in a very particular outcome or result that we think we either deserve or don't deserve. Now, now it's interesting that you're bringing forward this word trust, and we could maybe say, I would say, a kind of unconditional trust, it seems like you're pointing to. Do you feel that this type of unconditional trust in life is synonymous with faith, the way you're using the word faith? Yes. Yes. Because, again, it's, it's, it's not faith in something or someone. So it's a, it's a ground of trust, if you like, that I'm speaking to here. A ground of trust that somehow knows, but knows without knowing, that the way it is at this very moment, inexplicably, is somehow all right. Somehow the way it is meant to be. It's almost as if there is an intelligent process at work in our lives, but not an intelligent process that is being dictated from someone or something on high outside of what is happening. No, rather that the very workings of our life in this instant and moment themselves seem to have an intelligence that is beyond our knowing, but conveys a kind or quality of rightness, however difficult it may be. So that is the trust I'm speaking to, which makes us, you know, we can only bow down to that, you know. And I love that line by Merwin, W.S. Merwin, the poet, uh, when he speaks of needing to, we can only bow down not knowing to what. So, you know, the impetus to bow down is not really just a religious impulse. It's a human one. And all the beauty that is in any religious tradition is there because of our humanity, not actually because of the religion. It's been channeled into the religion, which is a beautiful thing. But it's, it's our birthright. Now, interestingly, the way that you've structured the book, Keeping the Faith Without a Religion, you have 10 sections, and you talk about trusting the knowing, trusting the mystery, trusting the dark, trusting the joy, trusting the changes, trusting the imperfection, trusting the letting go, keeping faith with beauty, keeping faith with kindness and love, and keeping faith with the human spirit. And I just want to say, Roger, that I think your table of contents is in and of itself a beautiful inspiration. So I just want to say that. Thank you. But the point that I was making about speaking to someone who's lost their faith or lost their trust, I would put into the third section of the book, the section about trusting the dark. Mm. And I, I wanted to start there because what I've seen is people who perhaps had a type of openness, innocence, faith, trust at one point in their life. And then for some people, when something terrible has happened, they've shut down after that. That's it. Forget it. I'm not on the side of life anymore because life did this thing to me, took my child or something like that. And I would love for you to speak to that person who has this longing inside that you're talking about, this universal human longing, but at the moment feels outside of that faith because of what's ever happened to them in their life. I think the golden rule for me and for anyone else is <clears throat> to start where we are to start with whatever is there, both in us and without, outside of us now. So if we are feeling despair or grief, it is not, it is not going to help to try and turn away from that and look to some light or think positive thoughts or try and trust. No, because a real trust in life as it is happening implies that we embrace what is happening, not intellectually, not conceptually, 
but with our felt sense, with our body, heart, and soul, allow ourselves, and this is scary stuff, this can be really scary, to, my God, you know, if you've, and I do write about my ex-wife, Maria, whose child of four years old died of cancer. And yes, of course, Maria was in immense and intense grief, and actually for a few years allowed herself to fall into that completely, to such a degree that she was really at moments on the edge of suicide because there was no reason to live with her daughter dead. Um, and I mention in the book uh, the moment that she speaks of uh, being by uh, a, a main street, a main road, and feeling, hearing a car coming, and feeling this desire in her simply to throw herself in front of, in front of the car, you know. Um, and she says, you know, all my life, whenever I'd been faced with a problem, I'd done what I could to control the situation. I'd read about it, made lists, planned my response, okay. But now she was dismantled, okay. And she was lying there, standing there, uh, in tears, by the side of the road, about to throw herself into the wheels of this, this vehicle. And then she became, she could feel her body, not her mind, but her body telling her, no, I actually, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't need to control my life, deny my feelings, or try and get better. I only need to allow myself to be as I am. Let me be this. Let me be this grief. And she stepped back in that knowing that that's what she had in that moment. She had this overwhelming grief. So I think the challenge to, to us is, is to... Be willing to embrace these moments of darkness, of fear, anxiety, hatred, without pouring them onto the exterior world. That these are our feelings, and therefore, if these are our feelings and our experience, they're, they're valid, but they're valid for us in that moment. And they're asking us to claim them, that is, own them, feel them deeply. And what can happen in that feeling deeply of any dark emotion, difficult emotion, is that it changes. But not by you trying to make it change, but by having the trust to know that if you allow yourself to feel that, to feel whatever it is, that it itself, by that allowing itself, that trust in the process itself will take you somewhere beyond it. That's what happened to Dante at the beginning of the Divine Comedy. You know, the first two or three lines of the Divine Comedy, I woke to find my, found myself in a dark wood, you know, the right way truly lost. So he starts the whole thing with an acknowledgement I'm totally lost. I have no idea where I am in my life or what I'm doing. I'm in the middle of my life. And even now, in the middle of my life, I have no idea what I'm here for or what I'm doing. And he, he falls to the ground in the dark wood. And it's only then, when he falls to the ground, that he looks up and there, far in the distance, he sees the sun just before it sets. And the sun, of course, is in that instance a symbol of his own true self and the light in him. And something turns. But he had to fall into that darkness, the acceptance of it, the embrace of it first, for that to happen. There's no easy fix. I'm curious, Roger, in your own life, if you've had something that you might describe as a quote-unquote crisis of faith. And if so, how you got through it and what you learned from it? I don't know that I'd say 
crisis of faith. I, of course, like like I, like anyone, I've had um, crises, you know, deep, dark, unsettling times that have really challenged who I thought I was and what I thought life was. For example, um, three years ago, I was in Iran. I was writing a book on Iran. I was wanting to give a human face to the culture of Iran. And um, everything went wonderfully until I left after eight weeks to go to the airport to fly home. And as I turned up with my passport, I was taken by the security, uh, the intelligence uh, people, and I was taken back to Iran and I was interrogated for three days and it looked very much like I was going to be thrown in jail for five years um, as, a, as a spy, which I was not, by the way. Um, now, in those three days of interrogation, everything that I thought was solid and substantial, my life, you know, who am I? I'm a guy living in, I'm, I live in San Francisco and I write books and I, uh, I do this and I do that and my, my family is here, my friends are there. All of that, all of those images and ideas of who I thought I was started to fall away because it really looked as though my life was about to take a very different turn. <clears throat> and there was a there was a period there <clears throat> when they they actually left the room. The three of them who'd been interrogating me left the room um, and said they'd be back in five minutes. And they came back two hours later. And in those two hours uh, was when I really I really got that everything that I thought was my life on the one hand was my life, but on the other hand could evaporate in a second. And that fundamentally my story of who I was really was not who I am. And in that, in that moment, in that interrogation room in, in Tehran, uh, I really did experience uh, almost a, a liberating experience of knowing that whatever happened to me, whichever way my story went from then on, there would be no harm. Ultimately and intrinsically to who I was, because who I was was not my story. Who I was, who I am is fundamentally untouchable, actually, ungraspable even, because um, it, it, you know, it simply cannot be grasped. So that was a moment, really, if you like, of deepening faith uh, in, a, in a very challenging situation. And I think that happens to people uh, fairly commonly in very difficult situations. They uh, are, are thrown into a realization of themselves far deeper than they'd ever known. That's the closest I can um, come. That was certainly a crisis. But in fact, it was not a crisis of faith. It was a crisis that generated or deepened my faith in the, in, in the way in which life was living me. And it's really rather that way around, the way life is living me, rather than me, the person I'm used to, Roger, who's deciding to live his life this way and that. There's that, but underneath that, I experienced in that interrogation room that at a deeper level, life was living and is living me. And that's what I trust. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. 
And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, in the book, Roger, you begin the very first section. You talk about trusting the knowing. And I wanted to talk about that because I've heard people report, you know, I I don't quite know which inner voice to trust. Is this the voice of my ego or is this the still, small, silent voice that I can trust? And if I'm not going to trust a tradition any longer, I'm going to trust myself. I'm thrown back on myself here. How do I know that what I'm knowing is trustworthy? Yeah, great question. And, and ultimately, we never do, do we? I mean, that's part of the trust. There's, there's, um, there's no guaranteed answer to that. But there are two things I would point to. One is the reflection of one's peer community. In other words, what do your friends, how do your friends and other people respond to you and your, your faith in your knowing, whatever it is, your, uh, the way your life is moving, the direction your life is taking, the faith that you have in that, is that reflected in some way? Uh, is your authenticity, the sense of authentic- authenticity that you yourself feel, is that reflected in any way by your community? And the second thing I would say to that is that Something when when something is true, when something both feels true and is spoken truly, there's a there's a quality of presence that is almost tangible in the room when that when that happens. You know, it's it's as if you know, sometimes you, you may be with someone who you can feel is deeply authentic in the moment they're in and you just know but you know without knowing why you know but you know that what they're saying is true and the same goes for us so I think there is that quality quality of of presence that by the way is not the same as charisma so I think charisma, it's a fascinating subject, really, the difference between them. Um, but I would say that uh, charisma is more connected with our persona or outer self. But the presence is not something we generate, um, but really something that lives through and in and as us as we speak and act authentically. And so I, you know, that is an indicator. But at, at the same time, that's part of the faith that we, we do what we do and there is an element of unknowing always. There's an element of unknowing. Uh, if everything was uh, as clear as, as, a, as a bell, then... Um, it would be really as if we were living almost by rote, you know. But no, there's an unknowing. I think even people with the deepest faith have doubt. I wonder if you think there's any danger, if you will, in this time that we're in, where people are distancing themselves from traditional religions, the danger being that people's own sense of knowing might be distorting things, distorting teachings, not honoring certain ethical ideas in a certain way, or, or, or avoiding certain shadow issues that people would be confronted with. Like, I'm going to trust my own knowing. And so I've kind of created my own religion, if you will, and it works really well for me. And I have social proof because I've surrounded myself with people, but there's no challenge coming into the system in the same way that a tradition might challenge someone. So I'm curious what you think about that. I completely agree with you. I mean, that's part of the the danger and opportunity, really, of of the time we're living in. As one of, that was always one of the great concerns of uh, of traditional religion about uh, an individual 
uh, response to tradition. Uh, that's why the parameters were always very strict. You know, you followed specific rules because the idea was your individuality was to be subsumed in something greater than itself. And so your ideas and your thoughts are not of value. What is of value is the teaching itself, and you learn to al align yourself to, to that teaching. And there was a value. They did, that did have some value, and of course, many abuses. But yes, the, uh, what it was aiming to, um, to eradicate, really, was not only um, people who strayed from the true faith, uh, by having their own opinions and ideas, uh, but also, yes, that the tendency to personalize uh, a spiritual experience, for example, you know, to have a to have a, sp a personal uh, a spiritual experience, and to claim some authority because of it. Um, this is why, again, every tradition that I know of is very wary of spiritual experiences um, because we're rather prone, generally as human beings, to inflation when we get something special happen to us. We ourselves begin to feel rather special. Uh, whereas, of course, really a, a spiritual practice is, is wanting to take us in the opposite direction of um, essentially and eventually becoming invisible. Um, so, yes, there is a danger. There's a, there's a danger also because we live in a time of great individualism, which accentuates uh, specific personal experiences. And so we can make a whole uh, curriculum of these and, 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 you know, pass them on to others as, as the truth. However, we think about it, there have been a lot of traditions certainly Western ones or Middle Eastern ones originating in the Middle East, that have really, they've all come from personal revelation. I mean, Islam comes from personal revelation of Muhammad. Um, so how does one, you know, actually Jesus too. Um, so it really is a delicate issue that, but something I think that is really important to be aware of that um, to which degree is... Um, uh, so-called knowledge or uh, spiritual experiences, to what degree are they being used to feed the fire of personality and not the fire of the soul? How do you think we can address this danger, if you will? You could say it's the danger of keeping the faith without a, I'll say here, without a tradition, without a teacher, a community to be checking on you and creating checks and balances in the system. How do we address these dangers, do you think? Well, first of all, it's difficult. It's not easy uh, because, you know, the our personality, our sense, our story of who we are is so all-pervasive that it would take anything as food. So any any insight, any experience is always has the potential to be taken up um, and used to the advantage of, of, of the story, our story. So, you know, let's begin by saying that is, that is a challenge. I think the greatest teacher is life. In other words, um, what goes up comes down. I mean, life itself can be an incredible teacher, often precisely through the very dark times that we were speaking of a few moments ago, or through a, an, an awareness of, of our own imperfections, or through the way in which change happens and suddenly takes away the rug from under our feet when we were least expecting it. Life can humble us at any moment, and humbling really... Um, T.S. Eliot said that, you know, of all the qualities, you know, really, humility is endless. Uh, and we are not likely to want to 
and it wouldn't really be humility anyway, to make ourselves humble, but life is quite likely to do it for us sooner or later. Um, if we're willing to pay attention and to see life's events in that way and in that light as teachers. Now, there's a very interesting section of the book that I quite liked. It was the part on trusting the letting go. And in it, you talk about how you don't think that people really need to have a set of intentions for how to make their life better, that they don't need a set of, you know, prescriptions so that this faith that you're talking about can happen in the midst of even letting go an orientation towards, these are my intentions for my life. And, and so I wonder if you can speak to that, because that's a different viewpoint than you often hear people talking about. Oh, yeah, it is. Um, but first of all, let me say that it's not that I'm saying intentions are wrong or useless, because of course intentions have value. What I'm putting forward here is the other side of the picture. Um, so yes, intentions can be useful, but at the same time, we live in such an intentional culture where, you know, everything is, is, is by the book. In some way, we, you know, you get up and you say, okay, what's my intention for the day? And which tasks am I going to get done for the day? Um, how much meditation am I going to do for the day? So, the, you know, the, the intentions themselves can be in danger of working against this fundamental um, flow of life, actually, that has its own intention for us. So what I'm saying is not that intentions are uh, have no value. Of course they do. But I am wanting to put the the other side of the equation here. The other side of the equation is that, and let's, let's replace for a moment the word intention by the word doing. So uh, this is a very results-oriented doing culture. So what would it be like to allow oneself to do nothing for a while, for an hour, for a day? Now, I don't mean to go and meditate, because that's doing something. But just to allow yourself to have no particular plan for the hour. You may just lie on the sofa for an hour. Whatever it is, you may sit in a cafe. Um, but the point of this is really to allow life itself to emerge and have its way more in you. you know? I mean, Jung uh, said this uh, wonderful few lines in, in his Red Book. Uh, you teem with intentions and desirousness. Do you still not know that the way to truth stands open only to those without intentions. Letting things happen. The action through non-action. The letting go of oneself. This became the key for me that succeeded in opening the door to the way. One must be able to psychically let things happen. So that's a very countercultural suggestion. But I think it's one that's really valuable, and I certainly found that absolutely invaluable in my own life, to have times of do nothing. And how do you think those times of doing nothing relate to this question of faith? What's been your experience with that? Because it relates to that because in letting go of one's own will, which is what we're speaking of here, one can begin to feel a willingness, which is distinct to willfulness or will, one can begin to feel a willingness to allow life to move you to the next action. And by doing nothing, I don't mean that you do, that there is no action. I mean that you're not consciously planning your next hour or your next day or filling it with this or that task, that you are being willing to let go of those intentions for a while 
and to let the feeling of life restore you to your own presence. So the trust, the, the faith in life, trust in life, emerges in that spaciousness when you are just giving life time to show you what it wants to do with you. Mm -hmm. Now, Roger, I know that one of your most well-known books is a book called Ten Poems to Change Your Life, and that you've written many books that draw on the poetic tradition. And I'm curious to know what you feel is the connection between poetry and keeping the faith. This is something I think that is certainly something I'm really interested in, um, but I think is a currently general interest, that as, as the authority of religious traditions begins to fade uh, and somewhat merge into one into the other, other languages also come to have a place in the uh, expressing of our, of our deepest sense of, of being human and being alive. Um, one of those languages is the scientific language. I mean, science, I would say, uh, now um, holds more wonder than religion does. Uh, it's opening the doors to wonder every day. Uh, so the language of science is beginning to, or more than beginning, is, is well on its way to, um, to being used as, as, as a vehicle for these deepest human feelings and, and aspirations. So too is the language of the arts. So I would see actually the language of the arts and poetry in particular as a universal language of the spirit. And I think that is actually what we are gradually moving towards now, a language of the spirit that is non-denominational and uh, even um, it, it, it crosses boundaries of, of human endeavor and study and research so that science, the arts, religion sort of merge and connect with each other in an evolving language of the spirit. And poetry uh, in particular, first of all, of course, uh, literature in general and poetry in specific is using language. So here we have a voice, a language uh, of the spirit um, that seems to be relevant now to more and more people. I mean, so many people now actually read poetry uh, as, as daily inspiration and even instruction. Um, and I think there's, there are several reasons for that. Uh, one is that a poem, a good poem, reaches down into the essential of who we are, to the essential dimensions of, of our humanity. And it expresses that essentiality in the most concise form possible. So it's not a discussion. A poem is the essence, if you like, of an experience. And because of that, you know, a poem can enter us like an arrow or a sword even and strike deep into our heart and mind in a way that a discursive essay um, might not, or at least a discursive essay moves through it in a different way. But a poem is immediate and direct. Uh, and if it's, a, again, if it's a really good poem, it carries a seed of truth. And that is that seed of truth is what we recognize as readers when it strikes us. And we go, oh, yes. You know, as if that poem has articulated something that we knew, but we did not quite have the words for ourselves. So that is uh, one way. Poetry uh, is a form that can help us connect with that fundamental faith in being human because it it returns us to that place it returns us to the depths of our humanity um, so too does art of course but in a in a, in a non-linear um, 
way without words. Um, but great art can do the same thing. Now, Roger, you pointed out that as we move away from traditional organized religion, there's this responsibility that moves to the individual. And in the book, you draw this distinction between individuation and individualism. And I thought that was a very interesting distinction. Could you explain that to our listeners? Yes, I'd say individualism is, uh, first of all, it's the cult upon which this culture is, 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 has grown. Um, individualism, I would say, is the um, means of living in life that, that is primarily concerned with one's own goals and aims, and that really everything becomes food for, for that for getting what you want, essentially. Essentially, individualism is the, uh, is the heart of capitalism. Um, and individuation, uh, which I think might have been used first as a word by, uh, by Jung, I'm not sure, um, is to do with the maturation of the individual person. So not so much in what the person can gather to themselves in terms of uh, acquisitions and talents and, and knowledge, but more the journey of maturation of this individual through life um, that allows them to integrate their inner life with their outer world. And with that integration, you know, the individual himself or herself is not the sole, uh, the sole um, interest. The, the, there's, the individual becomes part of the larger whole because through that maturation process that happens through life, one comes to see one's inherent interconnectedness with everybody else. Uh, and so that is quite different to individualism where you simply are not aware of your connection with others or with the planet for that matter. And so everything is fair game. If, uh, if you want to extract oil until the earth collapses, doesn't matter as long as you get the oil and make the money because you don't have a sense of your inherent connection with the earth or with other people. Individuation does have that awareness and that awareness happens over time, through that gradual process of maturation, which happens through the ups and downs of life, with a, a quality of interest and curiosity applied to those ups and downs of life. So that you're not just a, a ball in the wind, but you're actually paying attention to what life is telling you and showing you as you progress. That is the maturing soul that I would call individuation. And I think this is a, a related question, and it's one of the questions I have about this time that we're in, this time in which people are interested in keeping the faith without a religion, which is the community function that organized religion played in people's lives. It seems like that's a lot of value that people received from traditional religions. I get to be part of a community. Here, I'm an individuated, let's say, being, and I'm connected to other people, but it's not really like a religious community in the same way. How might that need, do you think, get filled, or will it not? Will it just look differently? Well, I think it'll certainly look differently. And by the way, religions will always continue to exist. There will always be religious communities to which people can belong or join. So it's not that religions are going to disappear, um, but certainly their influence uh, is diminishing by the week and other alternatives are emerging. So uh, I would say sounds true as an alternative in itself, actually, that it's offering a platform and context for people of like mind and interest to come together out of curiosity and interest to um, open themselves to ideas, to perspectives, to other people's experiences. Um, there are many, many platforms like this, both, um, both concrete ones, that is, live ones, where people come together 
for a common interest or question um, or where people even yoga I mean yoga is a huge community all over the all over the country um, the ones not to judge you know the different kinds of the, the values of these different kinds of communities but I think this is in process that people are looking for exploring and also creating different kinds of um, different kinds of community usually around a particular theme actually one um, former community I've been very surprised by is the online community I've recently over the last several months begun uh, teaching some online writing courses around themes uh, to do with um, the examined life and I was very skeptical actually of uh, of any online work in the beginning um, and now after what four or five months I, I really see it quite differently I've been amazed at the way in which people really have in a virtual world uh, developed a sense of community around a particular subject or theme uh, of personal growth or in a in a maturation um, and that community happens through the way in which people share their uh, feedback with each other I mean I ask people to write on a uh, on a particular theme for uh, each week for six weeks and when they write uh, they they post in a, in a Google group room and everyone else can see it and can respond and it's the responses and people's feedback to each other that generates this sense of community and people become very engaged so you know we're really still very much at the beginning of this whole online world uh, which I and I'm sure many others looked at originally with great uh, wariness and suspicion but I think we just still don't know um, what value it, it has for us and in terms of community I think there's definitely a potential there along with everything else that happens uh, in shall we say real life. Okay Roger I'm just going to ask you one final question and it's not a small question it's the note that you end the book on keeping the faith without a religion which is keeping faith with the human spirit and how we might look at this question of keeping faith with the human spirit in the midst of the news reports and atrocities that we hear about so regularly. How do you do that? How do you keep faith with the human spirit in light of terrible reports of absolute violence and stupid, selfish, incredibly harmful human actions? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Has there ever been a time when, when that has not been so? Um, I don't think so. And so, you know, after one lives a certain amount of time, one begins to realize and acknowledge and see that that violence and terrible acts of cruelty and misfortune are all simply they they are part of what happens here on earth and probably always will be and that it's it really harks back to what i was saying uh, a while earlier that this is part of the fabric of life both in our own individual life and also in our collective life as human beings that it is really imperfect i mean for a start we all die you know we're not going to be here much longer, any of us. And, you know, that, if we really get that, that changes things. But so we actually have an inbuilt defect, which is we're not built to last. And all the other defects and imperfections are also uh, inherent, really, in, in this life that we're living. And it's terrible. And we cry and we weep. I cry. I weep, you know, I feel, you know, helpless at times uh, in the face of some of the things I know that are happening in this world. And yet, and yet, I know too that the most remarkable, at the same time, the most remarkable things 
are being done by human beings everywhere, all over the planet. And the faith essentially is in the knowing that this is intrinsic to this life, that this weaving of light and dark is that it's the nature of things. It is how it is. That does not mean it's all okay. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It does matter. We matter. And we feel it. I feel it. But feeling it is not to mean that it should go away because I think we've had enough time now in human history to realize it's not going to go away. It, violence, suffering, sadness, sorrow, loneliness, abandonment, are intrinsic. And, you know, the deeper we fall into our own lives, the deeper we can come to acknowledge that as part of, part of the picture. I love this quote by Diane Ackerman. She says of life, it began in mystery and it will end in mystery. But what a savage and beautiful country lies in between. That's what I hold to. Tommy. I've been speaking with Roger Husden. He's written a new book with Sounds True called Keeping the Faith Without a Religion. And there's also a companion audio series of the same title. Roger, beautiful, really, to speak with you. Very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tommy. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.